Stella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, Grizz Nation, to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast, a podcast on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network alongside GBB Live, 3ND, and the Starting 5 Podcasts. Grizzly Bear Blues is a blog under SB Nation. Be sure to find it on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. I'm your host, Parker Fleming, and with me is none other than Big Nate Chester. Nate, what's up? I'm doing good, man. Sometimes this is good to hear the classics. And every time, it's it's nice to hear a Big Nate every once in a while. Do I want to be called Big Nate on a regular basis going forward? No, I'm an adult now. I have a full-time job now. But every now and again, it's nice to break it out. Hey, I felt like it was necessary. The Grizzlies just scored a big win over Andre Gidala, Jay Crowder, and the Miami Heat. Okay, I have a take about Andre Gidala. We need to stop hating on this old man and stop beating up on this old man. Did you not watch him play today? He's done. He's finished. He was able to masquerade himself over the last year or two as a specialized defender and playmaker on a team with four future Hall of Famers, um, three of the best shooters of all time, and one of the best individual scorers of all time. And he he was able to fill a niche role for them in that way. Wait, wait. one of the best individual scores of all time? I think you meant two. Well, I guess. I'm, I think people identified Durant with that more than they do Curry. But sure, put Curry there as well. KD did it for longer than Curry has throughout the course of his career. But nonetheless. Nonetheless, you can't watch Iguodala in a situation where they could really use – the Miami Heat could really use scoring off the bench. And he is just a sieve offensively out there. The Grizzlies were barely even guarding him at the three-point line. I think he took one three-point attempt from the corner and bricked it. Um, They need him to be able to score the basketball. Rotation players typically need to be able to score the basketball. And Andre Iguodala just simply can't bring that at this stage of his career. So it makes me wonder about how sustainable his career will be going forward. I highly doubt he'll still be in the league at the end of the two-year contract he signed with the Heat. Yeah, one thing I think is going to be a real shame is when the Heat are taking away valuable playoff experience minutes from superior players like Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson to play Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Well, I hear you on that, but Duncan Robinson will get plenty of playoffs and NBA Finals minutes once he becomes a member of the Memphis Grizzlies in either 2022 or 2023. I don't remember off the top of my head which free agency class that he's a part of. He's in he's in next summer's free agency class and one. So um, Mickey Arison, according to a tweet I saw yesterday, lost two billion dollars in net worth over the course of the COVID nineteen pandemic. So maybe he's a little more reluctant to get into the luxury tax. And if LeBron James's final year in Miami was any indication, he's always been reluctant to dip into the luxury tax anyway. So maybe if they're able to get Giannis. 
he doesn't want to pony up for Duncan Robinson, and that opens up an opportunity for a team like the Memphis Grizzlies, which why would someone like Duncan Robinson not want to play on the Memphis Grizzlies in this system with the point guard, John Morant? Yeah. Um, always remember, when, when this happens, remember who's who spoken into existence. Mm-hmm. Well, I technically can't claim responsibility for that. I think you did a couple of days ago on Twitter. Yeah, that, that's exactly what I was hinting at. Okay, you, you weren't going to let me have any credit for that whatsoever then. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you just like – you can be like the vice president of the campaign as um, my co-host and fellow Duncan Robinson, Stan. Honestly, if the Grizzlies roll out a lineup in 2022, it's John Morant, Dylan Brooks, Duncan Robinson, Jaron Jackson. We'll throw Brandon Clark in there as well. They could end up having one of the best offenses in NBA history. That in NBA history, I said it. I said it. I already see the look on your face, but I said it. Uh, the Dallas Mavericks are doing it this year with the lineup that they're rolling out there. Luka's great, but that team, you go down the roster and you think they have no business being the most statistically prolific offense in NBA history. So is it far-fetched that Memphis could do that with adding a shooter like Duncan Robinson? I don't think so. Anyways, so the scrimmages are over, and I mentioned in my piece that went live today, Tuesday, as we're recording, basketball's back. We're getting to witness all the greats of it, which is, you know, the the dime-dropping delights – the fast break yams, just the sound of sneakers hitting the court. And you're also getting the bad, which is, you know, bad refereeing, semi bad or pretty bad stretches of play at times. And then hasty takes off of one game or even one play. One game. Don't even make me laugh. <laughs> Try <No>. two seasons. <laughs> no, I'm talking about there's just <laughs> – there's a lot that happened over the scrimmages. Lots of takes were thrown out there. And to start this, I'm going to start with the Dylan Brooks hate. Because, you know, I've, I told Joe this. I even told our resident Dylan Brooks hater, Justin Lewis, about how I couldn't really come up with ways to defend Dylan Brooks in his first two scrimmages. He just didn't look good. And you know what? Coming from me, the author of the Constitution of Dylan Brooks Island, <laughs> that, that's saying a lot. <laughs> and, but he played well today against Miami. He had 23 points on 7 of 10 – or no, 8 of 12 shooting, I believe. And he only missed one of his – or two of his six three-pointers. You want to know know what the most hilarious part about it is? There's really no reason that he should have had a better game today. His shot selection was just as terrible today as it was the two previous games. He is a streaky scorer who is going to take a lot of bad shots. And if you don't like Dylan Brooks, you don't like his current place in the rotation, or you don't think he's the long-term answer at the two-guard spot, which is always up for debate, um, you can take your victory lap after a game in which he shoots like four of 17 or something of that nature. But I wouldn't run too hard on it because he's definitely going to come back and have a game like today when he shot 60-plus percent from the field while scoring 20-plus points. Um, he's a guy who's going to give you, on average, 15 to 16 points a night 
but he's not going to give you 15 to 16 points consistently. He's a guy who's going to give you 20 to 25 one night, and then the next night he's going to score seven points at about 14 shots. That's just simply who he is at this point. And I don't know why people sound so shocked or perturbed when he has a couple of awful nights in a row. This has been his M.O. ever since he was a rookie. Well, one thing I saw in this game in particular compared to the Houston game was he found a lot more of his opportunities coming off the catch and shoot. It could have been either A, his shot selection, B, the ball movement and the flow of the offense, or just a combination of everything. But there's all this slander. like, oh, bench DB, start Melton, start Josh Jackson. And I'm going to quote um, Memphis X from – and the OG, what's up, chat? Dylan Brooks is like the reason we're in the bubble. If he didn't have that two-month hot stretch in December and January, the Grizzlies probably will be one of the Delete Eight teams. They would not be here. He might be the most impactful on a night-per-night basis rotation player who's not a star-caliber player in the league because I don't, I can't think of another player off the top of my head who's generally just a role player or elite role player, depending on what your view of him is, whose team's performance, as far as wins and losses is concerned, relies so heavily on them. I can't think of another player in the league like him where a team's performance relies so heavily on a single role player, but that's just what he's been all year long for the Grizzlies. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you can see their record when he scores 20 or more points, and you can see their record when he scores 20 or less points. There's a major disparity there because the team goes as Dylan Brooks goes, for better or for worse, and probably for worse that's the case, but that's the reality they've had all year long. I mean, yeah. I mean, regardless, I mean, he's probably your – um what like your fifth sixth best player on the team and that, that's also like still pretty good considering that I mean look at the four best players and look at the depth of this team like he's he's an impactful player for this team and also too people forget and granted is this a com is this just a combination of the fact that the Grizzlies have had bad wing luck or the fact that Dylan Brooks is really good probably both but Dylan Brooks is the best wing the Grizzlies have had since Rudy Gay. And it's not even a hot take to say that. Like, it's the actual truth. I don't, I don't even know who you would even bring up as an argument against that. And I know DB can be frustrating at times. It's frustrating to watch him go into fallaway jumpers with two hands in his face like he did on the very first possession of the game today. And then he picks up a quick reach and foul on the other end. I know it can be frustrating. But honestly, I'll take his irrational confidence and aggressiveness versus, say, a Courtney Lee who looked terrified to shoot the ball half the time that he was in Memphis. And you also can't underestimate the defensive intensity that Dylan Brooks brings on a night-by-night basis. He's not a great defender. He's just physically not. But he gives great effort on this side of the court, and he generally almost always takes – the Grizzlies' most difficult matchups at the other end. He guarded James Harden and did a pretty good job of it. Harden still put up good counting stats, but Harden had to work for what he had the other night. So you can't underestimate the impact that he's able to have on the game even when his shot is not going in. Right, and that's something I kind of did see a little bit in the last two scrimmages that I've gotten. I didn't get to watch uh, Friday's scrimmage against Philadelphia, 
But granted, he also did have four turnovers. One came off of a traveling call, and I think another was like a charge foul. But he had three assists in today's scrimmage. And then against Houston, he also had five, three assists, five rebounds. So he's still trying to find a way to get his hands in and contribute to the team, even if his shot's not off. That's something he's shown in the bubble. And when I wrote my six-part series on him, that's what I liked about Dylan Brooks as far as his potential as an elite role player is because his rookie season, he didn't really get a chance to show that he can do all that other stuff because he had to focus solely on scoring the basketball. Who else was going to score the ball? Wayne Selden, Andrew Harrison, not those guys. And there's potential for him to be more of a better all-around player. Because granted, he, sh- he could be a better overall player. He could foul less. He could rebound the ball a little better. I mean, he's a six seven two guard who's about like 220. Like he should be able to get in there and go grab some rebounds as well. And as a perimeter player, he should generate some more playmaking opportunities. But one takeaway from here is shot may have been off, but he's trying to find other ways to contribute to the team and their success. And you got to applaud that. Yeah, you do. And um, I got a prediction for you. He's going to get it started off right um, when the Grizzlies play the Trailblazers on Friday because he'll have C.J. McCollum guarding him for most of the game, most likely. Um, And I think he'll be able to find his shot. He'll take C.J. McCollum to the rim. He'll get some easy looks at the rim. And his shot is shrieky. His shot selection is not good more often than not, but he's shown himself capable of making tough shots. And I think he's going to get them started off right, and Grizzlies will need him to because if he's not, they've shown over and over again it's very difficult for them to win basketball games if Dylan Brooks is not playing well and not scoring efficiently. But I think he's going to get started off right, and I told you this earlier today. I think another player who's going to get started off uh, off right against the Portland Trailblazers on Friday is Jaron Jackson Jr. Yes. Out of two of the three scrimmages <laughs> they played in. <laughs> and um, on top of fouling out his uh, shooting line for the, these three games, you have four of 12 on one of six shooting from three. You have three of 10 on two of four shooting from three. And you have two of 11 on two of seven shooting from three. Now, those are very closely tied together. If you can't stay on the court because of fouling, you're not going to be able to find an offensive rhythm. And that's been the case for him for major portions of his first two years in the league. Um, It affects him in every aspect of the game. Um, It affects him defensively. He can't be tenacious. He can't be aggressive on the defensive end of the court because he's afraid of the whistle. And even though he's afraid of the whistle, he still somehow gets a bunch of whistles over the course of most games, and he obviously can't find an offensive rhythm when he's not on the court. And, look, you know, people were giving me crap for talking about his fouling issues earlier today. Um, That's basically become a part of my brand at this point. I didn't want it to be, but we've talked about that ad nauseum. But I think he's going to have a very good first game on Friday because he's going to have Carmelo Anthony and Zach Collins defending him. Old man Carmelo Anthony should not be able to defend Jaron Jackson, whether that's at the three-point line or whether that's down in the low post. He should be able to have his way down there, and I don't think Zach Collins is going to be able to do much to stop him in that way either. Grizzlies need Jaron Jackson just as much as they need Dylan Brooks, and it's about finding a rhythm. It's about finding a flow, 
Jaron is better than what he's shown in three scrimmages. He's a far better scorer than he's shown. He should be far more efficient than what he's been so far. But in order for him to pick and find his spots on the court and be efficient from those spots, he's got to stay on the court. He's got to find a rhythm, and he has got to find a way to stay out of foul trouble. I mean, I could preach that all year, two years in a row, that this is what he's got to do. And it's what he's got to do in the bubble because the fact of the matter is it's not going to be looking great for the Grizzlies. And if he's dealing with these issues in five, six out of the eight games, they could find themselves slipping to the ninth spot. They could find themselves absolutely having to play in the play-in scenario. One thing I will disagree with you on is they don't need Jaron Jackson Jr. just as much as they need Dylan Brooks. They need him more. I mean, sure. when it comes down to it, he's the best overall player on the team. He's the best shooter on the team, best volume shooter on the team, uh, the most versatile defender on the team. And one thing that he's shown also in the bubble despite having not as great success, but he's at least flashed it as his ball handling. Oh, yeah, it's been better. It's been very markedly better, for sure. He, he nearly took Bam Adebayo, one of the league's best defenders from the big man spot, off the dribble. And if it wasn't for just a little tie-up and loose ball foul, he probably would have gotten by him for, to go to the rim. And, I mean, and also what it looked like, too, is Jaron didn't necessarily take any bad shots. It just didn't fall in. And that's kind of what it – kind of was a common theme in these scrimmage games, especially on the Houston game. They're, they just could not find a rhythm, just ball couldn't find the hoop. It's, it's honestly as simple as that. But I do think Jaron Jackson Jr. will be fine. And, you know, I clapped back and talked about some different players that had similar foul trouble early in their career. And the most prolific one is DeMarcus Cousins because it's about the same rate. And, and DeMarcus never really fixed – he never really got over that issue, and he still became an all-NBA caliber player. So my opinion is, is that I don't think this issue is ever really going to fully go away for him. I think, um, I think it's going to get better. I certainly don't think it's going to be as debilitating in the future for him as it is at times now. But I do think it's going to be – a concern for him throughout a good portion of his career. And DeMarcus Cousins is evidence in and of himself that just because you deal with that issue doesn't mean you can't become an all-star caliber player. Yeah, I also think, too, he will get a better benefit of the whistles as he progresses in his career. I mean, one thing with DeMarcus Cousins is he was the NBA's resident hothead. So the refs weren't going to be as kind to him on the whistles. But – there are some other names in there that I threw out that they ended up becoming all defensive team big men. You had Paul Millsap. You had Mark Gasol. Joel Embiid in his rookie season averaged 3.6 fouls in almost only 25 minutes a game. To be fair, that's because Joel knew he could hack people because he had severe minute restrictions his rookie year in the league. <laughs> yeah, but I mean – I vividly remember him throwing a chair because Brett Brown wouldn't put him back in an overtime game. Yeah, but I think Jan will be fine. And I think one um, – I think the biggest thing when it comes to him and staying on the floor is one thing that became very evident in these scrimmage games is it's, Coach Jenkins may not just be – he may not be playing Gordy Dang. 
and just deciding to rely on Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark to serve as their de facto backup fives while also giving Jonas Valanciunas a little bit of an extended run. I mean, Valanciunas today played about 28 minutes, and then against Houston, he played 27 minutes. And that's a little bit above his season average of like 25, 26. But you know where Valanciunas has been good the last few games, and I have no metrics to back this up. This is purely by the eye test. Been very good at closing out and spot up shooters. Oh yeah, he's been attacking hard on closing out. Yeah, yeah. And he, I, he he said in a press conference like a day or two ago that was an area of concern for him that he wanted to focus on. And it appears he's put time and effort into figuring out that part of his game. I, I think um, our faithful leader Joe Molinax was the one that asked him about closing out on the perimeter because you know that's been. Joe's big critique when it comes to Jonas Valanciunas and how to value him and how to see him as a piece for the Grizzlies, both in the short and long-term future, it's his ability to defend on the perimeter. I mean, we saw Nico Melli light him up on um, on the one of the two Pelicans games. It was the MLK was, game. I was there. I remember my, the death by Nicolo Melli is about as painful a death as it sounds. Yeah, but um, one thing that also, Valanciunas did really well. Is he just did a good job of clearing space on both ends of the court, whether it's getting rebounds or finding opportunities in the post or coming off screens for John Morant. He made space on the court, and it was very evident in that Houston game when they were trying to stick Eric Gordon and PJ Tucker on him. Like you could, I think Jonas Valanciunas in an actual game setting against the Houston Rockets. He could have gone for 33 and 20. Like, if it was a regular season game, he could have just obliterated them. I think the interesting thing about matching Jonas up in a situation like he was against Houston, and I think this is very interesting about Houston's philosophy when it comes to small ball basketball, is that most teams nowadays in the modern NBA are not built to feed the ball to their center every single time down the court. You may look at your matchup on the other side of the court and see PJ Tucker at six foot seven is the top or six foot six. I mean, way too generous there is the biggest guy on the court. So we need to feed it to our big man. But most teams are constructed around a pace and space offensive philosophy uh, that emphasizes ball movement and shooting. They're not comfortable delivering it to their big man to score over and over again down at the low post. That's how most teams function. Um, But Jonas Valanciunas, as a player who's a little bit more apt to play in an NBA as of 10 years ago than he is today, is able to have success against teams like that. And they're going to need him to be a consistent low post scoring option because we saw it in the game against Houston where the Grizzlies started to falter in the fourth quarter offensively. They started to fall back to bad habits, and they were just simply struggling on the offensive end of the court. That's not going to be the exception. There are going to be times in these eight games where that happens for the Grizzlies, and who is your safety valve in those situations? It's Jonas Valanciunas. If John Morant's not feeling comfortable with the jump shot, if Jaron Jackson's not <coughs> if Jaron Jackson's not in the rhythm because he's either in foul trouble or just not playing well, who is the guy that you go to? And it's Jonas Valanciunas every single time. And they will need him to be the consistent low-scoring offensive threat that he's been all year long. And he's going to be bodying up with Joseph Nurkic in his first game back on Friday. 
Yeah, and I, I think they're about on the same tier of centers. And I do want to ask just this quick tangent question. Who the hell on GBB said that Jonas Valanciunas, his role could be fulfilled by Gordy Dang or a cheap center? Mr. Sean Coleman is who said that. Such a, it's such a bad take. Yeah, I mean, it, it, John said, God bless him. I love him, but he's had plenty of them this year. <laughs> but um, I guess Gorgie Dang was just so awful with that first scrimmage that Taylor Jenkins just said, hey, we're unlocking our center of the future right now <laughs> because he was a consistent member of the rotation all the way up until the suspension of the season. And that wasn't just when Jaron and Clark both went down. That was even before they went down. He was a consistent member of the rotation. And he played well. He didn't miss a single shot at the rim during the time that he played with the Grizzlies after their acquisition of him. And yet, here we are in the scrimmages, and Taylor Jenkins isn't comfortable to play him. It's strange. It's interesting. But um, he just needs to find time for Grayson Allen. I think that's what it comes down to. Well, (laughs) you bring up that stat, and he went one of four against Philly. But one thing I saw him do in today's scrimmage is he missed two shots at the rim. I think there were two consecutive shots at the rim. So, he got the classic Chester jinx. Yeah, I just said, like, that man obviously never got off the couch during quarantine because, um, you know, he was a god there <laughs> before play, uh, the bubble began. But missing two in a row, maybe he didn't work out much during quarantine or maybe that's just the numbers way of coming back down to the mean. <laughs> I do want to kind of pivot to, you know, something that you brought up is about how Coach Jenkins would like to go with his starting five of the future as the team's backup. And with Jaron Jackson Jr., I think his readiness for the five is kind of masqueraded by his rebounding deficiencies and his perpetual fouling. But he's impactful there, especially when you're pairing him with a four like Brandon Clark or even a four like Kyle Anderson. He saw most of the time whenever Jaron Jackson Jr. is at the five, he's playing with Brandon Clark. And I mean, the numbers just speak for themselves. They're dominant when those two guys are on the court at the same time. Filtered some lineups on cleaning the glass. And when Jaron Jackson Jr. is playing center, Without Jay Crowder or Solomon Hill on the floor, the Grizzlies are outscoring opponents by 15 points a game, which is in the 99th percentile among all lineups. And if you filter for Jaron Jackson Jr. and Brandon Clark lineups, the team is a outscoring opponents by 16 points per game or 16 points per 100 possessions. Yeah, I think it's a per 100 possessions kind of thing. But still... Here's the fact of the matter. Yes, he struggles as a rebounder, even though by the eye test, I think he's been a little bit more active on the glass in the bubble scrimmages. We don't have recorded statistics for me to go back and look at that, but he has looked a little more active on the glass. And yes, we've already talked about his fouling issues ad nauseum, but here's the fact of the matter. When you're playing him at the five, even in the modern pace and space NBA, most fives are not comfortable defending other fives who can shoot threes, much less come so far out of the paint that they have to do to defend someone like Jaron Jackson, who can launch it from 25 to 30 feet. Bob, uh, Bob Adebayo 
he is a great perimeter defender for a center. He's a great post defender, and he's comfortable getting out of the perimeter, but he doesn't want to come out to 25 feet against anybody, even though he does have very good lateral quickness and is a good perimeter defender for a big man. You think he wants to come defend Jaron Jackson out there? No, of course he doesn't. Do you think Miles Leonard wants to do that for the Miami Heat? Of course not. And if the Grizzlies are running Jaron Jackson at the five, when the Portland Trailblazers are running out a lineup of, say, Joseph Nurkic or Zach Collins at the five, he should be able to have a lot of success at the three-point line. Now, his jump shots haven't been falling so far in the bubble scrimmages to the degree that we are accustomed to, but they've been good shots, and they're going to fall in time. But if you believe that shooting is the utmost premium in the modern NBA like you and I do – that even if he does struggle to stay on the court because of his fouling issues, even if he's not a great rebounder, shooting is always the most valuable skill in basketball. And if you were able to maximize him as a shooter at the five because other team centers are not comfortable coming out to defend him that far, then that is probably where it is the most valuable place that you can use him. Yeah, I think one of the things that kind of just – makes this lineup good too is they're surrounding them by they're surrounding Jaron Jackson Jr. with very versatile defenders who also where if they get caught in switch situations and they're in rebounding position they're going to get rebounds I noticed one thing that Brandon Clark does a lot is he he volleyball taps rebounds out to either guards or himself mainly he tips it out to guards to get them in rebounding position but most most of these lineups they consist they have Tyus Jones, they have John Moran, they have DeAnthony Melton, Brandon Clark, like I mentioned, Kyle Anderson, Dylan Brooks, uh, Josh Jackson. For their positions, probably with, except for Tyus Jones, they're pretty good rebounders for their positions. Mm-hmm. And one thing they're also able to do out of that is quickly get into some transition offense. They they score 125 points per 100 possessions, which is at the top of the league. And they also generate turnovers at a crazy rate at 16.3%. So I just, I just think that sometimes, I think with that in particular, their defensive versatility and their ability to come up with the deflections and steals and transition offense, that's the big win for playing Jaron Jackson at the five as opposed to given minutes to Gorgie Dang, because you know what you could do with those Gorgie Dang minutes is you can give extra minutes to Kyle Anderson, who somehow turned into Shane <laughs> Battier over the course of this scrimmage play. Okay, or you since, can, you, since you mentioned him, let me present this quick aside. I texted Parker yesterday um, saying there is absolutely no way that Kyle Anderson will ever make four threes in a game again. Um, the scrimmages are just weird. We're not supposed to take them as indicative of what's going to happen in the future. Um, he hit four threes today, right? Was it four? He hit three. He hit three, and he hit two in the first four minutes of the game, and I'm just sitting there, like, just gawking at the screen, thinking, what in the good Lord's name happened to this man? Did he find the Lazarus pit, the fountain of youth, to heal himself over the last four months? His jump shot looks entirely different. There's no hitch at all, which has already been mentioned a lot on social media, among other places. But he looks like a legitimate spot-up threat in a way that he has never really been throughout the entirety of his NBA career, John Moran has gotten at least five or six assists off his threes alone 
into three bubble scrimmages. It's incredible to see. And if he continues on this pace, I'm not saying he has to make two or three threes a game, but just being a constant threat that defenses have to close out on by having the nerd buzzword, gravity, it's going to open up opportunities for the Grizzlies offense. Yep. More in particularly, it's going to open up more opportunities for John Morant, which, again, like with those lineups for Jaron Jackson Jr. at the five, that's opening up gravity. And even though Brandon Clark may not be the best floor spacer in the world or the most willing floor spacer in the world, he has that gravity because he's a lob threat at any moment. Like I literally saw someone just kind of almost blindly toss it up to the rim and Brandon Clark almost finished it. So if I, there was a big discussion over about the 10th man in the rotation, the ninth man in the rotation, Joe Mullen, I did a lot of on it. I did a lot on it. It comes down to a traditional draft question that relates here. And it's talent versus need. You may need that rim protection and that extra rebounding with Gorgie Dang, but wouldn't you rather give those minutes to Kyle Anderson or Josh Jackson or I guess Coach Jenkins also sees um, value in giving those minutes to Grayson Allen and Anthony Tolliver? Which I mean, I don't. I'm not even going to complain about giving the minutes to those guys because Anthony Tolliver he's a willing ball mover and floor spacer, and Grayson Allen, you said it while running the GBB uh, Twitter the other night. I thought you were kidding at first, but, I mean, he makes stuff happen, um, whether it's just making the right pass. Nothing flashy, but just making the right pass or what he showed today in the Miami scrimmage of just being able to spot up and shoot from three or simply just starting plays in transition. Hell, he blocked a seven-foot Kelly Olenek at the rim. Granted, he Kelly can't jump over Grayson was just there, um, but I watched Grayson Allen on defense. You know who he kind of reminds me of? Who are you going to say? Aaron Kraft from Ohio State, a guy whose physical gifts should not make him a great defender by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not saying Grayson Allen is a great defender, but, oh, Lord, does he try. Man, he tries so hard on the defensive side of the ball. You can see it by the way he moves his legs and everything. He never gives up on a single play. And if I'm having to point out distinguishing factors as to why Taylor Jenkins brought him as the ninth man off the bench tonight, even after he did not play well in their last scrimmage against the Houston Rockets – I think of the effort plays. Yes, he's a willing ball booger. Yes, he's a good shooter. And yes, he's a solid defender. But he goes all out every single time he's on the court. And I can't help but respect that about a player, even at the NBA, even when you make it to that level of basketball, where a guy looks like he's playing for his NBA career every time he steps out on the court. And I'm not saying that Josh Jackson – is not doing that every time he steps on the court because really Josh Jackson's career is at risk when you think about it. But he, Josh Jackson, for whatever reason, whether he feels the footsteps of Grayson Allen in the Grizzlies rotation or he doesn't feel like he has a place in the Grizzlies rotation, he simply has not been as good as Allen in the last two games. He's also been forcing things. He forced the issue constantly on offense against the Miami Heat earlier today. 
I think Grayson Allen is ahead of Josh Jackson, the Grizzlies rotation, and that is not something I would have believed if you told me that one or two weeks ago. Hell, I wrote a piece about Josh Jackson a week ago saying this is his prime opportunity. This is his chance to prove that he belongs in the league and can be the player that he was thought to be coming out of Kansas in the absence of Justice Winslow. And it's weird now because I see that opportunity for him going forward being lessened because Taylor Jenkins trusts Grayson Allen that much. It's an interesting dichotomy. Yeah, fun fact with uh, Josh Jackson, so far in the two scrimmage games, I'm not going to take much out of it, but Josh Jackson hasn't made a single shot attempt or did not make a single shot attempt, excuse me. He was 0 for 7, but he also had zero stocks, which that's that's the NBA analytic term for steals plus blocks. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's another thing that Josh Jackson's going to have to do to survive in the NBA is he's going to have to be an impact defender and wreak havoc out there on that side of the floor. And as crazy as it is to say, Grayson Allen did that more than Josh Jackson did. I don't think you can just base this entirely off two scrimmages. And maybe Jenkins throws us a curveball. Maybe Josh Jackson's ahead of Grayson Allen in the rotation against the Portland Trailblazers, even though it doesn't appear that it's trending in that direction. But you can't underestimate just how good Josh Jackson was in the 17 games he played with the Grizzlies. Um, he was their leading scorer in March in the absence of Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark. He averaged 16 points a game in March, which if I'm going to read articles talking about how amazing Lonzo Ball's improvement was because he averaged 22-7 and seven in the month of March, I think I could use the month of March to say Josh Jackson was finding a nice little place in the Grizzlies rotation. And now to see him fall out of it entirely – it's strange, and I'm not convinced he's out of it yet. I think you're going to see Josh Jackson have an impact in some of these bubble games that are upcoming for the Memphis Grizzlies. They're going to have at least one game where they turn to him, at least one game where they can't find any rhythm on offense, things aren't going well, they're looking for a spark off the bench, and Josh Jackson will be the guy that they turn to for that. Now, whether he can provide that or not, I don't know. He can. He has the talent in order to be able to do it. But will he do it? That's up to him. And he wasn't doing it in the three bubble scrimmages for sure. Well, and if it's not Josh Jackson that provides that spark plug off the bench, it's going to be Grayson Allen. And then I will be insufferable. And then all the white men will rejoice together. (laughs) Well, Nate, to close the show, we're going to go back to our roots of where – we made the name for ourselves on the core four, and that's with hot takes. So what is your bubble hot take for these eight games? <laughs> Jaron Jackson is going to foul out of five of the eight games. <laughs> okay. another, another staple of your – I got to stay on brand. Negativity. All right. My hot take – which from the scrimmage games, it may not be as hot anymore, but you know what? Sample sizes do matter. And that is that Kyle Anderson will surpass his three-point total from this season (laughs) in these eight games. I feel like some kid that's running the Grizzlies 2K team in real life just like opened up the sliders, pulled up Kyle Anderson on the roster and upped his three-point rating by 15 or something and upped his three-point tendency as well. But, hey, 
his three-point total this season was 16. And that's only two made threes a game. And his career best shooting season was his 2017-18 season with San Antonio where he made 19 threes. <laughs> so my hot take will be that he meets or exceeds that 16 number because he's sure as hell going to reach that nine mark that he set last season. Isn't it weird that just some long-term shoulder strain is the only thing that kept the San Antonio Spurs from matching the Grizzlies' contract offered to him in the summer of 2018? Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Well, Nate, this is about all the time we have, so plug in your stuff. You can follow me on Twitter at NathanChester24, and you can find all my Grizzlies-related content at grizzlybearblues.com. Yep, and you can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, downloading every episode on the GDB Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, or wherever you find your podcast. And that will include every episode of the Core Four, GDB Live, 3ND, and the Starting Five. So make sure you're going to all those platforms and leaving some five-star reviews. And make sure you're reading all of our work at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. That's all, folks.